The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It's the last of a series of oppressively hot days out here in the Bay Area, and we're all understandably looking towards the fall when temperatures dip ever so slightly into the 70s. You might even need a jacket on your ride into work. Uh, my name is Ian Fisher, and I've returned to guest host the show this week after some really terrific shows from Beth and Sally. I hope you've enjoyed listening to them as much as I have. And if you happen to have missed them, keep in mind you can always take a look back at the archive both on Voice America and on iTunes for our entire catalog of episodes. Uh, we've got a bit of an unusual show planned for you today. Uh, my colleague Becky Leikling, a former senior admissions officer at Tufts University, will be joining me for our first two segments to talk through some case studies that we have developed to help our students better comprehend the college admissions process. Uh, So many students and parents wonder, what actually happens when I submit my application? Do they even read it? Uh, What will they say about me? We want to help all of our listeners better understand this process uh, to try and get you as close as we can to an admissions committee uh, over the radio. And so we're going to take you through these case studies exercises, and I hope that you'll follow along at home if you're able to do so. It might be helpful for you to drop, uh, to jot down just a few notes. Uh, so if you do have a pencil and paper handy, feel free to, to grab it and follow along. Um, but before we start taking on the case studies on hand here, we need to establish who we're reading for. Uh, Becky, can you tell us a little bit about Bristol University? Sure, uh, and Ian, thanks so much for having me here today. No, um, here. So, Bristol University is a made-up college. Uh, it doesn't really exist, but it has an acceptance rate of 46%. So, in the language of college admissions, that makes it a more selective university. Um, other colleges that are in this category, which technically, according to the the, the national governing body that identifies these categories, that would be you know, public schools like the University of Wisconsin, University of Washington. Um, it includes private schools like Texas Christian or Santa Clara in California, Fordham in New York, and then also liberal arts colleges like Occidental or Franklin and Marshall. So I say these all because you know, these real colleges are so different from one another. The only thing that makes them at all similar is that they've got a similar acceptance rate. Um, but for our purposes of this case study, we're, we're looking more at how colleges in this band of selectivity are looking at individual candidates. So, Bristol, our hypothetical school, um, accepts 46% of the students who apply. They are a Division I athletics program. They've got about 8,000 undergrads, and they are trying to draw in a diverse cohort of freshmen. 
from around the country with different interests, with different backgrounds. Um, and that's kind of the, the general have at it that the admissions officers have when they start. We're looking for a little bit of everything. And, and I, that's perfect. And, I, you know, I think that one of the things that we try to do whenever we do these case studies is um, we don't want to try and represent what a particular authentic institution's preferences are going to be towards students, what kind of uh, vibe they're looking for on their campus, whether that's academic or social. And so we sort of need to develop um, a fictitious university so that we can have the conversation about these students on the merits of what they produce in their application. Um, so that's really great. I, we have uh, three students here um, that we want to introduce you to. Um, and the first is Chris Dixon. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and start by just telling you a little bit about uh, what we received through his application um, and all of the distinguishing features that we recognize as we look here. And so I've got an actual common application here in front of me, and we'll tell you exactly how I might go through this now, were I reading this uh, as a, an admission officer for Briston? Uh, so I look on the front page, and I can see, uh, first of all, his, his name, his contact details, his demographics, and I can see that he's a, a white student, not Latino. Um, he uh, speaks English at home and was born in New Mexico, is a U.S. citizen. So just a, a basic snapshot of who the student is. Um, on the second page of the Common App, I get a little bit of info about the family background for Chris. Um, his father is uh, Dr. Eugene Dixon, um, who attended Swarthmore, got a PhD from Yale, and is a professor of sociology at ASU. Um, and Chris actually lives and attends school um, in the Phoenix, Arizona area. Um, his mother uh, has a business degree, uh, an MBA from Yale University as well. So I can sort of uh, internalize that Eugene and Marilyn, his parents, met at Yale, and there's a little bit of information about his siblings. And, you know, what I'm doing here as we go through this is just sort of calling out the facts of what I'm seeing from his application. I'm not sort of imposing any judgment at this point. I just want to get a read on, on who he is and what sort of the specifics of his application are. We can talk a little bit about how I interpret those later. Um, he attends uh, Desierto View High School in Phoenix, Arizona. And his class rank is 103 out of 450. So he is in that top 25%, but sort of uh, barely. Um, his GPA is 3.64. And this year, he's taking uh, Honors Physics, AP Stats, Journalism, AP English Lit, and AP, AP Economics um, with Honors Government as well. So a pretty rigorous course load there. Uh, his test scores are 650 for reading, 700 for math, and 680 for writing, so pretty strong test scores there. And his activities are a little bit more sparsely populated. So he's an interning analyst at the Santa Fe Institute in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's collected and analyzed some data from uh, Slum, Slum Dwellers International over two summers. He plays on the chess team, and he does some independent study of economics in his own time. Those are the three things that he's listed here uh, as his extracurricular activities. Now, I'm not going to read his personal essay out loud for you. I can sort of summarize it for you, that he has a passion for economics. He talks about his international internship with the Santa Fe Institute, in which he got an opportunity to travel to South Africa. Um, he's a big thinker, seems to have a lot of ideas in his head. So he seems like a dreamer to me uh, through the essay that he's written, and, and it sort of articulates this passion for, for economics. 
Um, at Briston, we also have a supplemental essay, which basically asks, out of the thousands of colleges around the country, why have you chosen to apply to Briston? Um, and he talks about the institution's intellectual honesty, its rigorous coursework, and a culture of learning. And this essay can only be 100 words, so it's, it's rather short, but he's done a decent job there. His high school counselor describes him as having a sharp mind and being one step ahead of the adults around him. He's got amazing philosophical threads, a talented thinker who loves to learn, that he's a little rough around the edges following protocol, but he stimulates others, a gifted writer with economics talent. And his teacher recommendation letter comes from APUS history, and the teacher says that he is passionate, intellectual, stimulating. Uh, the check marks, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but as far as the teacher recs go, there are check marks where they can rate you on a variety of different uh, characteristics, and these are all over the place. He's rated only average for disciplined work habits, only above average for motivation, but one of the top 1% for intellectual promise, quality of writing, and creative original thought. Finally, uh, his transcript. Um, and these are going to be his, his grades, and they're going to tell the whole story of his academic curriculum. And he tends to be a student who academically does really well in the classes that he likes, but is otherwise sort of a, a B student, maybe even a C student in those courses that are not particularly exciting to him. So he had an A plus in AP macroeconomics um, and a C minus in Spanish three. So that just sort of, sort of shows you a little bit about those differences. And that's, that's sort of a snapshot introduction into who Chris is. Uh, Becky, would you like to talk us through our second student? Sure. Uh, I will introduce you to Ellen McGuire, um, and as Ian said, you know, when I was reading applications at Tufts, my job as the initial leader or the territory manager of my specific area was to capture all the facts of the student's application. So I'm not going to yet say anything about whether I think this is good or bad. It's just these are the facts of Ellen's application that you've got to understand in order to know who she is. So Ellen McGuire is the, um, the youngest daughter of a family in rural New Hampshire. She lives pretty far north in the state, um, close to the Vermont border, actually. And her mother is a uh, her mother is a teacher in special education at the local elementary school, and her dad owns the local hardware store. Uh, he has a bachelor's degree from Saint Anselm College, and his, her mom has a bachelor's degree from Southern New Hampshire University. She actually has an older sister, Melissa, who is currently pursuing a two-year degree at Granite State Community College in Concord, New Hampshire. Um, and Ellen is a senior at St. Teresa's Academy, which is an all-girls Catholic school in northern New Hampshire. Um, there's 80 other kids in her senior class, and she is, ranked, she is ranked 21st out of those 80 students. So she is just in the top of the third decile, but firmly in the top quarter of the rest of the students in her school. She's taking a very demanding curriculum, uh, this year, she's in Advanced Biology, Calculus, Spanish 4, Economics, Female Authors of the 20th Century, and the Required Theology class. And there's a note from the guidance officer um, that this school does not offer any AP or IB classes. They offer their own curriculum, and she's, by taking Advanced Biology, she's taking you know, the second-year bio, but there is, there's no tracked courses at this school. So this is the most rigorous coursework that she could be pursuing. Uh, outside of the classroom, uh, Ellen is a dynamic 
soccer player. There's actually a note from the coach saying that she's a top recruit for the women's soccer team at Bristol, um, and they're really, really excited that she might actually apply early decision. Uh, so in addition to playing high school soccer and club soccer during the off-season, uh, she volunteers as a referee. She refs for the U8, U10, and U12 games in her town, uh, and as well as being an assistant coach for the Gorham Middle School soccer team, which I assume is where she went to middle school. Uh, in addition to her soccer commitments, she actually works, um, let's see, she works 10 hours a week in her family hardware store. She noted that she works on the weekends, so I'm assuming she's got a five-hour shift on Saturday and a five-hour shift on Sunday, working as a sales rep in the hardware store that her father owns. Looking to her Bristol-specific application, she wrote her she wrote her essay on soccer and on learning to be a leader this year as a captain. Um, she talked about how she initially assumed that she was voted captain because she's the best player on her team and she won, you know, most improved and she was all conference. And so she thought being the leader meant being the best, but it wasn't until she had to deal with some of the interpersonal dynamics that some of the new freshmen were bringing to the team and as well as with some of the, um, the drama that accompanied some of her other seniors not being elected as captain uh, and her coach was really relying on her to kind of be a mediator between some of these groups. But she realized being a leader isn't just about being the best. It's about listening and communicating and setting a good example. Her Why Briston essay, which again is limited to 100 words, talks about her prospective student visit to campus where she met with the coach and she stayed overnight with some of the girls on the team and really just felt like it was a great fit for her personality on and off the field. Um, her standardized testing, which I, I should have mentioned earlier, she has a composite 27 on the ACT. She also took the SAT and got a 620 critical reading, a 570 in math, and a 600 in the writing section. Moving to her academic performance, she has been taking all five core subject areas, math, science, English, history, and world language, throughout high school, and it looks like she's got a pretty balanced mix of A's and B's. I don't notice any trends. It's not as though she always get A's in Spanish and always get B's in history. It's pretty balanced across the board, but every semester she's got about three A's in those cores and two B's in those cores with a mix of pluses and minuses thrown in. Her uh, teacher recommendation letter says really positive things, but in a bit of a stuffy tone. Um, I don't know if that means, you know, they're not close or the teacher doesn't know her or there's something else going on there, but it's, it's not as effusive a letter as sometimes I might see. Still, the teacher says she does great at balance, especially during soccer season. She's able to manage her homework with her other activities um, and that she always does enough to make sure nothing falls through the cracks. This isn't somebody who is overwhelmed by everything on her plate. It's someone who can rise to the challenge and meet it. So I think that's all the general facts about Ellen. Uh, Ian, do you want to take us on to the third student? Yeah, so this, the last student here is James Ruiz Bradley, and he is a student at an urban public high school in Houston, Texas. He was born in Waco, Texas, uh, now lives in Houston. Um, he is a Latino student uh, whose uh, English is his first language, but he also speaks, reads, and writes Spanish. Um, is a, a U.S. citizen. Um, both of his parents did not attend college. Uh, so his mother 
went to business school, um, and his father is a mechanic. Um, in, when I say business school, what I mean is that she's got an associate's degree. Um, so it's, it's more of a, it's a trade school. And so we would consider him being first generation because his mother has not earned a four-year degree and neither has his, his father. Um, he is taking uh, this year AP English, uh, pre-calculus, AP chemistry, honors government, honors econ, and Spanish 4. So a, a really, again, pretty full course load uh, with a GPA of 4.36. Um, his test scores, uh, he's got a 24 composite, um, which is, I think, probably the lowest among this group. Uh, he's taken the ACT only and only took it once. Um, he hasn't taken the SAT at all. Um, as far as his involvement is concerned, he's pretty heavily involved. He's been doing student council for four years from ninth through 12th grade. He's the senior class president. He also plays the cello in the high school orchestra from ninth through 12th grade. He's on the mayor's youth advisory council for two years, and he's involved in the National Honor Society. So he's doing three things really well there in terms of involvement and commitment uh, to his particular community. Um, his essay was conventionally sound, but it was a somewhat aimless collection of three different anecdotes about his teachers. Uh, it really shows that he's interested in teaching, but it's not particularly deep. So the writing level is, is leaves a little bit to be desired. Um, the Why Briston essay talks about wanting to stay up late and discussing ideas, uh, but particularly focuses on alumni with a presence in the field of education, um, I think, which, which, again, reinforces this idea that he would like to be a teacher at some point. His counselor rec says that he's a great overall student involved in the community, certainly a hard worker, a talented musician. It's not a particularly thorough rec, and I think that's because it comes from a big public high school, so that's somewhat to be expected. Um, his teacher rec talks about him as being kind and sweet and caring, that he's bright in the classroom with a terrific work ethic above and beyond in preparation. Uh, he's a breath of pre fresh air in terms of how he interacts with his classmates. And from an academic standpoint, um, almost all A's, he's really only gotten one B throughout his entire high school career, um, and that was in AP chemistry as a 12th grader. But that was the only AP class that he has taken um, in his uh, academic career. And so uh, it's to be understood that, that he might you know, dip a little bit lower in that particular subject. Um, important note about his high school, which is that 35% uh, of the students at that high school um, attend four-year institutions, and about 25% go on to two-year institutions. So there's a very low rate of students going on from his high school to college, and that's an important thing to understand for context as well. Um, so those are the three students, um, and now that we know a little bit about them, their strengths and their weaknesses, uh, we look forward to talking through the decision-making process. What would we say about these kids in committee? How would we highlight them? And what would our colleagues want to know? Um, all that and more when we return on getting in a college coach conversation. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. 
Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes, Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Before the break, my colleague Becky Leckling and I introduced three fictitious applications for a mock admissions exercise. Now that we've met Chris Dixon, Ella McGuire, and James Bradley, we'd like to talk about how their applications might be discussed in a committee. Um, Becky, my committee was conducted with all the admissions counselors in the room. There were about eight of us. We had the dean. Um, Every single application that came to committee, we would discuss there. What what was your experience like when you were reading at Tufts? At Tufts, we would also work on committees, but we very rarely had the entire staff there. Actually, never. I would say our committees were either as small as four people or as large as eight or nine admissions officers. Um, and same as you were saying at Reed, we would go case by case through each application and the regional reader would kind of present that student and then the rest of us would talk about the applicant and, and come to a mutual decision. And, and not every file comes to committee. I mean, when we did it, it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15% of applications would actually get to that committee, usually the ones where there was a dispute between the first and second reader, or there was just a question of wanting to get some other eyes on it. Uh, is that your experience, too? You know, I don't know the percent of applicants that came to committee, but i got to believe it was higher than what you just said. Um, at Tufts, students who were clearly, you know, above and beyond standouts would be admitted without getting to committee, and some students who we thought just realistically, they probably weren't academically ready to thrive at Tufts. They wouldn't make it to committee, but for the bulk of well-qualified and competitive students, we did send them through committee. Interesting. That might be sort of a a function of the admissions percentage and and just being able to sort of clearly state that, hey, this student is well above what our average looks like or this student is well below what our average looks like. That's that's a little bit easier to do at a place like Reed where we admit about 33% of students might be a little bit harder at a more selective institution like Tufts where you're admitting, you know, in the teens to low 20% of students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the funky things about the way these case studies work is that we're, you know, sort of now in a position where we are trying to pick one of these three students to admit to our college. It doesn't usually work that way. Exactly. This is a totally artificial situation. Two students from different high schools in different states are never actually fighting over one spot in the admissions office. Um, 
you know, this is, we're putting this, this exercise together so that listeners can hear, you know, what admissions officers notice, what pieces of the puzzle stand out, but your kid is never directly competing with another kid. It's not so, you know, it's not like there are literally battles between students in the admissions room. Right. And, and, you know, you and I have a lot of experience in doing these case studies with groups of parents when we were college admissions officers, and we would walk into the room and, you know, everybody has already read the, read the cases, and they've got their ideas about which students they like and they don't like. Um, and often those ideas about what constitutes a strong application really reflect the biases of, of the parents or students that are doing the case study and what they mm-hmm. hope to see, you know, from their own students or from their own applications. Um, you've done these case studies a couple of times with your students, um, and so have I. Uh, what are their, what are sort of the general reactions that they give to each of these three applications in your experience? No, I've actually noticed that most of my students identify with and advocate for the student who seems most like them, the one who kind of has the balance of activities and grades that, that they bring to the table and they want that kid to be admitted, um, for parents, I don't notice a trend across the board in any way, except that I have noticed that people who manage others, you know, people who, because of their job, they directly supervise other people, they tend to prefer um, either Ellen or, well, they prefer the kids who have had jobs, the kids who have had real experiences. And they make some um, assumptions about both Ellen and James that they are more adaptable or can react quickly because of some of their backgrounds. Um, and parents who have students with really, really, really high test scores really want to see that, you know, the similar student, Chris, in this case, is the one that stands out. So I think here, too, it's really about your own background and you'll, the things that you've noticed in your workplace or in your family that seem like a positive to you. Right. And, you know, when I was developing the application for Chris and actually putting him together, I was like, this, this sounds like a really interesting guy to me. You know, he's super intellectually driven. He really loves economics. That might come at the cost <laughs> of his, you know, his other academics, but isn't that great? Like, he's really focused on this particular area of, of academics. And parents and students are just kind of like, this guy just needs to get his act together, <laughs> do his work. Like, what is the deal with him? Um, you know, I think, well, what and we I need think, talk about I it, think and, that reflects our personal biases as well, right? Like, right. Yeah. I, I'm from the Midwest, and I think of myself as a hard worker. And so, you know, when I was an admissions officer, I was really positively biased towards the Eagle Scouts, the Girl Scout goals, the kids who were putting in a lot of time to do kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that mattered that wasn't really, you know, celebrated. That kid is one that I identified with. And so if I found myself you know, getting really excited about a kid that I knew was playing into the things that I cared a lot about, I would send that kid for a second read to someone that I knew was bored by the Eagle Scout or thought that, you know, Eagle Scouts are overrated because I wanted to make sure we had the balance. Similarly, if I got a kid that was, you know, Ian, to your point, if I were going to read, you know, Chris's application and I found him a slacker, why wasn't he doing his work? I would send him for a second read to you or to the person like you in my office who I knew was going to balance that bias that I held to make sure that the kid got a fair read. Right. And this is, this is actually an exercise that we did um, at Reed when we were in the admissions office, at, you know, outside of reading season. We talked a little bit about the students that we tend to be drawn towards. You know, what, what do kids write about that we get excited by? What are the things that uh, we don't particularly like, you know, a mention of this or that? And it was really important for us to understand and um, 
cope with our biases because we wanted to make sure that every student was getting a fair hearing. Um, we didn't want to be in a position where, where I read Ellen and I say, well, I'm not particularly into this student, so she's not going to get into this school. You know, I have to represent the institution. In this case, it's going to be Briston and be able to say, you know, Ellen is, is terrific for these reasons. They may not be reasons that I would want to hang out with her or reasons that I would want to, um, you know, be in a class with her, but there's still things that I think really make her a compelling part of the university. Um, what are the things that when you were reading Ellen's application that you really pick up on? What would you say are her significant strengths as it relates to her application materials? Um, so I really like how, well, first of all, I mentioned this in the beginning, she's a recruited athlete. There is a clear impact to that university if they get her. She's going to be an immediate player starting on the soccer team. But she's yeah. not just relying on soccer to get her in. And even then, you know, she doesn't just play soccer. She coaches youth soccer. She referees youth soccer. She clearly has this passion that she's, you know, pursuing across the board. Um, and that's offset by the fact that on top of everything, she's working 10 hours a week. That's, that's a lot for a high school kid. So I was particularly impressed by her extracurricular depth, um, especially because she was able to maintain that extracurricular balance while still getting A's and B's um, and performing pretty well in her, in her high school classes. So that's what really stood out to me is that, that extracurricular range. So that's interesting because a lot of the parents and students we talk to, they say, well, I, I got to do more than my one thing. You know, I do soccer and that's all I do. Um, you know, I had mm-hmm. a student in my office last week, she was saying all I do is dance. And I said, well, let's unpack that. Let's talk about the different things that you do with respect to dance. And it turns out there's community service there and there's instruction right. there and there's actually employment there. And so it's not that you only do dance. It's that dance allows you to do all these other things. Exactly. Would it be a critique of her that she that she's singularly focused on soccer? Do you see that as a strength? Well, you know, I I certainly don't see that as a negative on its own. But I mentioned that the teacher recommendation was a little bit um, a little bit formal in its approach. And reading through the lines, I kind of wonder if Ellen does just enough to get by rather than really applying all of her efforts. It seems like the teacher thinks she prioritizes soccer over homework and that she does enough to get the grade, but that she's not equally interested in her schoolwork. And that's not something that is directly said. Teachers write positive letters. There's no reason a teacher would ever want to say anything. They want the kid to go to college. They don't want to see them for a fifth year of high school. So this is me kind of trying to figure out who the real person is behind all these different pieces of data. So no, on its own, I think Ellen's resume is great. I just was a little bit worried when I read some of the some of the maybe muted critiques of the teacher to wonder whether she really is focused more on soccer than academics. And in her Why Bristol essay, she also pretty much just mentioned the soccer team, which made me think for her, college is about playing soccer, not about learning and growing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, James, on the other hand, when you look at his teacher recommendation letter, he's got, you know, teacher says quite literally, James is one of those students that teachers love, um, that mm-hmm. he's a breath fresh air. And I think that he's got, you know, if you compare him to these other two students, his work ethic is not really questioned. Um, mm-hmm. He has the best grades, essentially, overall, certainly by GPA. He's just outside the top 10% in a high school class of 632. So that's, you know, that's pretty impressive to be up there. Um, and he's involved. Now, where he comes up short, I think, is with questions about his academic ability. So you look at his 24 composite compared to a 27 
for Ellen. Um, and I think that that would be probably a 28 or 29 if Chris had taken the ACT. That's what his SAT scores would correspond to. So mm-hmm. James is not quite at the same level academically um, as the other two students are, but he's got this work ethic. And so that's something that, you know, there's a question mark there of whether that work ethic is going to be enough for him to carry the day when he comes to Bristol so that he can handle this college-level work. Is he able to be able to, to push forward and, and really do a, a good job when he finally meets this rigor for the first time? So when you were at Radian, how would you have come to some sort of decision on that? Like, is he going to be able to step up and make it happen? Uh, you know, I think that for us, there were there were big indicators that we were looking for. I mean, certainly when we look at test scores, we want to make sure that they're at least in a position where we see students typically be successful. And so the institutional research office of most colleges and universities is going to track the performance of students uh, after they get in to see what their test scores correspond to in terms of their academic success at the college campus. And so I think he would be fine. You know, looking here, 24 ACT isn't, you know, setting the world on fire, but it's enough. Um, he's also a Latino student, and, you know, students of color typically perform worse on standardized testing than Caucasian students and Asian students. And so it's important to understand how those trends might affect uh, performance mm-hmm. and test scores. Um, and, you know, just the fact that everybody who talks about him says that he's a hard worker just makes you wonder why would he ever stop working hard, that he has these sort of tools at his disposal to be able to go out there and, and make this happen for himself. He seems driven, even if he doesn't yet have this ability, and it might just be a function of not yet having been in the right community um, within his public school. He does mention in his Why Briston essay, you know, I want to stay up late and discuss ideas, and that's probably something he can't do in his high school. Um, so, yeah, he's somebody that I feel like it's a risk, but not really a risk, because everything right. he's done so far has been has been really good. Um, Chris, on the other right. hand, is a risk, right? I mean, right. do you think, like, is he somebody that you would be interested in bringing into your campus, somebody who's got this super strong intellectual horsepower but doesn't actually seem to put in the effort on a daily basis? I think Chris is the hardest one for me to think through where he would fall in the top applicant pool because, um, and and honestly, I think that's probably going to be true for colleges across the board. He clearly has this raw intellectual firepower that the other kids maybe have as well, but it's not as accurately captured in his essay and in the recommendation letters. That kid is smart. That's the sort of kid that in 10 years, you're going to see him on the news on CNN explaining the research that, you know, won him the whatever prize or fellowship. He's smart, but is he going to be a good roommate? Is he going to show up to class or is he going to forget? Is he going to take advantage of the resources of the college or is he going to be in his own world? And so part of me thinks this is where the exercise is an imperfect one because so much of it matters or so much of the decision matters what the college is, what they're looking for. Um, And if, you know, the college really values a sense of community and giving back and exposing yourself to um, all sorts of subject areas, not just the ones you're interested in, Chris probably doesn't seem like a good candidate. But if right. the, the college is really focused on, you know, student research and bringing the brightest minds to campus, and um, these things aren't necessarily at odds, but different institutions might react to his raw firepower in a different way. Yeah, you know, one of the questions I often ask is, which of these three kids 
would the professors most want to teach? Who do they most want to have in their classes? And I think that that's, you know, in my opinion, that's pretty clearly Chris because of the firepower that he has within economics. But he also might be the least desirable roommate from among the group. He might drive the other kids crazy because he's always off in his sort of his own little world and, and seems to only <clears throat> care about the things that are relevant to him. Well, um, and I think also I there's a lot of context involved in this. You know, Chris's dad is a professor at a university. And so Chris probably grew up having conversations and going to university events, even just, you know, tagging along with his dad, that the other two kids never had access to. You know, Ellen's from right. rural New Hampshire, and Justin's, you know, his parents didn't go to college, or they didn't complete a four-year degree. And so some of that firepower might be that he, he, he grew up talking the talk, and maybe the right. other two will develop that when they're in that setting. Right. I think that's right. And, and so, I mean, part of the point of this exercise, right, is to make a decision about one of these students that we'd like to admit. But I think the real point is to emphasize that there's no real way to, to choose one of these three. There's supposed to be tension around choosing one because there's, there are different values that you can bring to the table to decide on, on Ellen versus James versus Chris, right? Um, mm-hmm. Any parting thoughts about this particular case study or things that you hope that um, students and parents would know about uh, this process? Well, when I, when I do this exercise with my students, I try to remind them how human this process is. It's real people like you and me who are reading these applications and making these decisions. And so when kids say, well, what do they want to hear? What should I put? The answer is, who knows? Who knows if I'm going to read it, if you're going to read it, right. if Karen or Beth or Kenan are going to read these applications. So students, I advise my students to stop thinking about what they want to hear and try to present right. the best of yourself on the application and trust that admissions officers are going to cut you slack and that if your file is initially read by somebody who just doesn't care about puppies or doesn't care about volleyball or whatever you're writing about, they will do their best to capture who you are but then they'll send that application on to a second reader that's going to really identify with whatever it is that you're writing so that you will be seen in the process. Um, And again, to remind students that even with that said, there's still a lot of luck in this. Is your application the last one that is discussed before lunch or is it discussed on Monday morning at 10 or 5 a.m.? And that's totally beyond your control. So end of the day, there's no right answer try your best to highlight what you're proud of and trust that if you're having a balanced list and you're applying across the board, you're going to have some good options. Perfect. So there you have it, a little insight into the college admissions process with a little help from our fictional characters, Chris, Ellen, and James. <laughs> uh, thanks a lot, Becky, for, for coming to discuss these. Uh, great time talking to you as always. Um, thanks for having me. Well, we hope that... Yeah. Um, so while we hope that this conversation was exhaustive, uh, there is something that was conspicuously absent from our conversation, and that is financial aid. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk all about how financial considerations, need and merit-based, might fit into the decisions made by an admissions office. So stay with us. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, folks. In the first two segments of today's show, my colleague Becky and I talked through the details of the college admissions process using a case study. But we left out any conversation around finances as we made our decision. Joining me now is Lori Peltier, former financial aid director at Anne Maria College and assistant director at Becker College. Welcome, Lori. Hi, Ann. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Um, you know, when we went through this case study, one of the first things that we talked about was the first page of the application. And on that first page is a question of whether you intend to apply for need-based financial aid or not. Um, and I think parents and students are always wondering whether that's going to affect their chances of getting into a college, particularly a need-aware college. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what need awareness is and then whether that uh, question is going to affect a student's chances of getting in? Sure, sure. It, it is a big question that we get a lot here at College Coach of, you know, should I check the box or should I not? Um, need aware means that the college is trying to pick and choose which students they accept so that they don't break their budget. What a lot of people don't understand is that when a college offers a student financial aid or financial assistance uh, to help cover the cost, a lot of that money is coming from the college budget itself. Yes, there are some funds from the federal and state government, but those resources are limited, and for a private college, they would never be enough to cover the gap of what the college is going to cost. So mm-hmm. colleges that are need-aware realize that they have to be careful of how many students they accept who fall into a very needy category financially because they would go out of business if they had too many students who were very needy and they had to give them a lot of money to make it uh, affordable for them to enroll. The colleges that are need aware that may impact a admissions decision are usually the ones that also publish that they meet 100% of your financial need. 
So not all colleges right. can can meet 100% of your financial need. And those schools that say that they can, then they have to be need aware oftentimes because they can't afford to to offer everybody 100%. Um, right. So they may review your financial data as part of the admissions review. Typically, just like with an acceptance, um, the student who the school is their safety school or their just right school, they have a better chance of getting in. If you're a needy student and it's a challenging school for you or you end up on the wait list, then you have a, a much smaller chance of getting accepted because not only were you borderline for admission acceptance, but now you're also a needy student. So why would that school go out on a limb to accept you and give you a lot of money when you weren't their prize candidate to begin with? Right, and that, that was where this, this tended to um, really become uh, an issue or a salient issue at Reed was when um, we were sort of at the edges, right around the students that were, you know, close to not getting in or close to getting in. That's really where the need awareness made an impact. And I think for the vast majority of students that were applying, need awareness wasn't particularly relevant. Um, but when we were sort of shaping that class towards the end, that's really where it came into play. That was when it became a, a salient part of the process. Uh, so what about that checkbox on the actual application? Does that tell colleges anything at all? Uh, am I in trouble if I put yes but don't qualify? Where, where's the relevance there? No, what I've been told um, by several schools, and we have, you know, colleagues uh, here at College Coach have worked at a variety of colleges, and everyone says that box is just to tell the college, does this person need a mailing from the financial aid office? Does this person need to be put on a postcard that says, you know, remember our FAFSA deadline date is February 15th or something like that? So it's more of let's keep track of this person because we want to make sure they don't miss anything. Uh, typically, the college will wait until the financial information is in. So a need-aware school needs to look at your financial data to make a, a decision. If they have no financial data to go on, they may make some assumptions about, you know, the parent's uh, income based on their occupation, based on where the parents went to school, uh, or if the parents went to college, based on the high school you attended or your address. It is pretty rare that a school would, you know, try to make some assumptions about how needy a student is. Uh, and again, it's only those students who fall in the fringes. Uh, so typically, checking the box is not going to be an issue for you. What I tend to find at College Coach is the families who are worried about it and the families who are asking me about it have incomes of, you know, 180 to $250,000, and checking the box or submitting the FAFSA form for that family may even help them get accepted because then the college is going to say, okay, yeah, this family is applying for aid, but they're not going to need a lot. This family is not a very needy right. family, so we'll go ahead and accept them because it might only cost us $10,000 in financial aid for this student, whereas... You know, another student may cost us forty-five thousand dollars. There's a big difference there. Yeah, definitely. Now, do you know? I mean, your experience was there any conversation around yield there? Because, I mean, I think one of the things that a family who makes about that money might be saying is, you know, the college might say that we can afford to pay everything except for this ten thousand dollar 
need scholarship, but we actually need a whole lot more than that. Um, does that does, is there any conversation around how students might yield or decide to attend an institution based on the financial aid package that's offered to them, or does financial aid stay out of that? No, definite, definitely. Um, the, my last role in a financial aid office prior to coming to College Coach, we had a whole chart based solely on yield. We looked at historical data of which families were saying yes and which families were turning us down and how much money in the different income categories was required to make a family say yes. And we knew as a private institution that every student had the option of their in-state public school for a lot less to begin with. So, so if it was a student that we really wanted, whether it was based on their demographics, their diversity, their academics, their athletic ability, we knew that we had to offer more than our typical aid package in order to make them yield a yes because they had so many other options. Um, and we were even looking at what other schools they were applying to at that time. It was years ago when we used to know, you know, where else they were applying for admission. So, so yield is definitely something that's looked at and analyzed and applied in the financial aid office, you know, once the student has made it through the admissions process. Right. And so, so it sounds like, you know, this, the checkboxes are just deciding whether you want to get some postcards from the financial aid office. Um, and that in general, you want to check yes and submit your forms if you're going to qualify for even a small amount of aid because it's better to have that than not have it at all. And you can make the decision once you've got that financial aid package in your hands. Right, right. And I think it all goes back to applying to a variety of schools and knowing where your student sits in the applicant pool and making sure you have some safety and just right schools and not applying to just challenging schools. So. You know, I did this with my own kids. You know, you can apply to all these schools, but we're not making a decision until April 1st when we have your financial aid offers in hand. Because for many places today, it is going to come down to money, and you could get accepted to a lot of places, but until we get the aid packages, we're not making a decision as a family. That makes total sense. Um, So we're we're talking all right now about need-based financial aid. Uh, which is essentially based on the the FAFSA and possibly the CSS profile. Uh, But what about some of these recruitment scholarships, particularly a recruited athlete? Um, You know, Ellen was one of the students in our case study who was a soccer player, varsity soccer player, and was certainly interested in coming to Bristol to play soccer. So how does she fit into the process as somebody that the soccer coach might want to have on his team? I think that varies depending on what NCAA division school you are. If it's a Division One or Division Two athlete, the athletic department is going to have their own money to give out, and it's not going to really impact the budget of the college because whether the money goes to her or another recruited athlete, they have that money up front to give out already designated to that sport. Um, and typically, if it is Division One or Division Two, and she's being offered an athletic scholarship, that help him, happens well before the need-based aid money goes out. Uh, 
Um, so that mm. usually happens much earlier. Um, and, and that recruitment money is specifically there so that she won't go somewhere else, so that she'll choose that school. At a Division three school, it gets a little bit more muddled. Um, a Division three school cannot offer athletic scholarships, but they could still offer an academic or a leadership scholarship if she mm. qualified or they would try to make her look like she was qualified. I worked at a Division three school where the athletic director every week gave me a list of athletes that they would love to have, that, you know, whatever I could do as director of financial aid to make it happen to get these kids to come. So, um, you know, uh, we would, I hate to say it because, uh, you know, you're not supposed to do this, but, you know, you look at those kids and you say, well, typically this student might get 80% of their financial need met, but uh, maybe because we could find another way of categorizing the student, we might be able to meet 90 or 100% of their financial need or give them more grants than loans so that their financial aid package was better so that they would choose us and to, and to come and play at our school. So that's, and that's something you might see with a student like Ellen who, you know, she played soccer and was certainly desired uh, player as far as the coach was concerned, but she also had some elements of community service and leadership that were involved in her profile. And those things could potentially have helped her to get a, a leadership scholarship or an academic scholarship because she becomes desirable to the institution in a number of, of other ways. Um, right. So, so they definitely, you know, get recognized in the admissions and financial aid process. Usually there's correspondence between the athletic department and those other two departments just to know that when these applications come in, you know, don't just look at them as a regular student. They're bringing other qualities to the campus as well. And in my mind, a student at a Division three school, even though they might not be getting a large soccer scholarship right up front, but if they get an academic scholarship, the academics or leadership scholarship is usually for all four years, as long as she would maintain a certain grade point average and be a full-time student. And so for the family, it's a little bit more of a guarantee that that money would be there year after year. Financially, it's a little bit more stable. If it was a soccer scholarship and she injured her knee or didn't get along with the coach or didn't like the amount of playing time she was getting she might lose that athletic scholarship because they're usually year to year. They're not for all four years anymore. So for financial stability, usually a Division three school with an academic scholarship could turn out to be better than a Division one or two school with an athletic scholarship. Interesting. That's, re- that's really interesting. I, was, I didn't know that. Um, well, great. Th- thank you so much, Lori, for all of your expertise and for helping to bring some of the financial perspective to this conversation. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, pleasure to be here. Great. Well, that does it for this week, folks. Um, I hope you learned a little bit about the admissions process and you got some helpful tips for developing your own applications for admission. One of the things we didn't talk about through the case studies was that every single one of the students that we described here are all desirable in their own way, whether it's Ellen for her athletic and, and, and community commitment, whether it's James for his work ethic, or Chris for his intellectual ability. So uh, there's always something that you can bring to the table as a student. Join us next week for an all-new show with helpful tips for high school students and their parents. We'll be discussing the Apply Texas application and all its various ins and outs. We'll also give some ideas for questions you can ask financial aid officers on your campus visit. 
And as a special treat, we'll be welcoming back a college coach alumna, a student who worked with us through her college process. She's going to tell us all about how her college options maybe didn't meet with her initial goals, but that she's made the most of her opportunities anyway. You can always find us in the archives or on iTunes, and we look forward to seeing you here every week at 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 Pacific. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.